Okay, um, good afternoon everyone. Um, welcome to today's event with the Middle East Centre, which is on Libya's fragmentation, structure and process in violent conflict. And my name is Jess Watkins. I'm a research officer at the Middle East Centre and I'll be chairing the session this afternoon. Uh, so our speakers today are Wolfram Lacher, who is going to talk about his new book for around 15 minutes, and then Shireen Tarabulsi McCarthy, who will offer around a 10 minute response and then we'll move on to the Q&A. Um, if you'd like to ask a question, then please type in your question into the Q&A box at the bottom of the screen, um, and you can do that at any point during the proceedings. Um, and uh, I will address the, the questions to the speakers. So please note that the event is being recorded this afternoon and also live streamed on Facebook. At the end of the webinar, there's a, a short survey uh, just so that we can find out a bit more about uh, our audience and it would be really helpful if you would answer the survey for us. If you'd like to tweet about the event, then you can use the hashtag LSE Libya or hashtag LSE dash Middle East. Um, and I think that's it. Um, so before we get started, uh, just to introduce our speakers. So Wolfram Lachert is a senior associate at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs in Berlin. His research focuses on conflict dynamics in Libya and the Sahel region, and he's done frequent field research in Libya since 2007. He's been published in a range of journals and media outlets, including Survival, Mediterranean Politics, Foreign Affairs, and the Washington Post. Shireen Al-Tarawulsi McCarthy is an intern senior research fellow at the Overseas Development Institute in London. Her research focuses on humanitarian politics, conflict and security in Africa and the Middle East. And she's published widely in academic and policy journals and outlets, and has been featured in a number of media outlets such as Al Jazeera, the BBC, RT, Thomas Reuters, The Guardian and others. Shireen holds a doctorate from the Department of International Development and St. Cross College, University of Oxford. Um, so I'm going to hand it straight over to Wolfram, um, and uh, you have around 15 minutes. Thank you very much, uh, Jessica. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining the conversation. Um, I'll present uh, some of the main themes of my book in the next uh, 15 minutes or so. Uh, so the research that eventually became this book uh, was initially sparked by the localism that has defined uh, Libya's political and military landscape uh, since 2011 and continues to define it today despite the growing role of foreign intervention. What I mean by uh, localism is the fact that from the first weeks of the 2011 uprising onwards, um, political factions and armed groups emerged that spoke in the name of particular local constituencies, spoke in the name of particular uh, cities or tribes. Um, and this was a striking phenomenon in uh, the first years after the fall of the regime. It set Libya apart from neighboring countries where rulers had also fallen. And it took me a while to make sense of this. Who were these uh, factions? Who did they really represent? Uh, were these armed groups really protecting and defending their communities or were they abusive gangs? Uh, who were these supposed local dignitaries who uh, went around taking political positions in the name of their communities or in some cases um, sat down with elders from other communities to talk about reconciliation? 
were there really tribes and cities fighting against each other? And was this really rooted in legacies of intercommunal inter uh, conflict, as some people told me? Or was it all a smokescreen for very different uh, conflict dynamics, as others said? It very quickly turned out then that um, what looked like the same phenomenon actually hid very different things. Um, armed groups that claimed to defend their communities in some cases were deeply rooted in these communities and had a broad local base, while in other cases um, they were predatory militias um, with very little social backing. The same went for the local notables that went around saying that they represented a particular local constituencies. The second uh, thing was that virtually no community I encountered was politically united, even though the extent to which they were divided varied. Um, and um, very few, if any, political military figures could credibly claim to um, speak for entire communities. So what at first sight looked like a landscape that was split into local fiefdoms with very few national political and military forces, in reality turned out to be even more fragmented. And increasingly so as communities were drawn into the post-revolutionary power struggles. And this, um, I found, was the primary reason why it was so hard to form a stable coalition at the central government level that could have re-established central authority, both after 2011 and after the second civil war in 2014, uh, 2015. There were too few cohesive political and military forces, and it was very difficult to establish who could credibly negotiate on behalf of uh, local constituencies. And this remains a big obstacle um, for negotiations uh, today. At the same time, many of these local forces have proven extraordinarily tenacious. They were able to resist Khalifa Haftar's offensive on Tripoli, uh, even though um, Haftar was at a big advantage for much of the recent war in terms of foreign support, and they were able to ultimately defeat it once they, once they obtained substantial foreign support um, of their own. So the aim of the book is to um, explain this extreme degree of fragmentation uh, and explain why nobody, including Haftar, who came closest, has been able to overcome it. Is that just because that's what Libyan society is like? My answer, in a nutshell, is that it has a lot to do with conflict dynamics themselves, with the way violence transformed Libyan society. And so, um, the book really tries to do two things. On the one hand, it provides a micro-level account of Libya's trajectory since 2011, but on the other hand, it advances a theoretical perspective um, on Libya's conflicts that emphasizes the role of violence in transforming social relations, and it emphasizes the role of the social ties in which the actors of the, con of the conflict are enmeshed. Now, what, I, what do I mean by the role of violence in transforming social relations? Violent conflict redefines social groups. It makes some identities more salient, politicizes them, 
It creates new categories of friends and enemies. People are killed or displaced on the basis of uh, these categories. Um, friendships end. New friendships are built through conflict. People from uh, communities that are defined as enemies no longer mingle, no longer go to visit each other, no longer drive to the next town that is on the other side of, uh, of the divide. New leaders emerge, people directly linked to the parties uh, in the conflict. And through such processes and more, violent conflict creates new political communities. Now, what's important is that such processes matter even during the escalation into civil war itself. What we see in many civil wars, but we see it particularly clearly in societies that descend into civil war for the first time in a long time, is that the actors and the camps of the conflict actually form during the escalation. During the escalation, uh, certain categories become more salient. They could be ethnic or tribal categories. They could be political categories, such as um, Islamists. And the use of such categories to designate adversaries then has an effect of its own, because members of these groups bond together in order to protect themselves against threats from those who collectively label them uh, as enemies. And in that way, and sometimes in a very short time span, communities can come, can come to constitute political actors where before they were not, where before uh, they were not politically united and not positioned clearly on either side of uh, the divides. In the case of the escalation into civil war in Libya in 2011, you could probably see these processes more clearly than in many other cases because under Gaddafi, it wasn't possible to openly uh, organize political constituencies and mobilize them against others. And so when in February 2011, rebellion suddenly became a possibility, there was a scramble to uh, establish which constituency was loyal and which was uh, in rebellion. And the labels that were used very quickly turned out to be self-fulfilling prophecies. So in political science, we've long searched for the causes of civil war in underlying structural conditions, such as uh, poverty, state weakness, uh, resource wealth, or we've searched for them uh, in um, bargaining failures. The processes through which conflict escalates into civil war have received less attention, but it is through such processes that the actors in a conflict actually emerge. And so part of the book is about what exactly happened at the local level in Libya in the first days and weeks of the uprising and what this tells us about such processes. A few words about the role of um, social cohesion in this uh, analysis. As I delved uh, deeper into the way power struggles were playing out at the local level in the years after 2011, I came to a seemingly paradoxical conclusion, which is that political fragmentation, in this case meaning the coexistence of competing political factions within local communities, is strongest and most persistent where social cohesion is strong. And that is because 
where social cohesion is strong, rival political factions cannot act with utter ruthlessness against each other. Um, they have to tread carefully. They, in many cases, cannot use force against their political adversaries because they are tied to these adversaries through densely net uh, uh, social networks. And so where um, social cohesion is strong, such as in many former revolutionary strongholds in the Nafusa mountains um, or in Misrata, we see that rival political and military factions continue to coexist alongside each other without entering into direct confrontation with each other. Whereas where social cohesion is weaker or has been eroded by years of conflict, um, rival factions do enter into direct confrontation with each other. Um, and in some cases, single factions gradually consolidate control, including through the use of violence. And the most prominent example of this is Khalifa Haftar's power structure in Eastern Libya. And this brings me to my last point, which is about how social cohesion interacts with conflict. In the study of uh, civil wars and of uh, insurgencies, social cohesion has featured mostly as something that is taken as given, as structural. Communities are either cohesive or they're not. Um, and the extent to which they are cohesive, um, then, for example, uh, uh, this determines whether they can function as social basis for rebellions. Uh, because members of, um, uh, well, trust between members of a community reduces their fear that their neighbors may be supporting the government, such as by providing it with information. But what we see in Libya, is that violent conflict transforms social uh, relations and it also alters social cohesion. Many Libyan communities form dense networks of social ties with overlapping uh, uh, ties of family relations, neighborhood, friendship, work, uh, socializing with extended families playing an important role in people's lives. But the extent to which these communities have united in conflict varies strongly. And their involvement in conflict has invariably transformed them. It has, in many cases, divided them. But in cases where um, the revolutionary struggle of 2011 was a collective struggle, a communal struggle, it has strengthened social cohesion. Um, uh, it has, uh, because you know, people came to depend on each other more, trust each other more, uh, share deeply transformative experiences through collective struggle. Um, in other places, the struggle was not collective, but um, only uh, some groups, minorities from a community, went to join the war and then came back uh, with weapons. And in yet other places, um, regime repression at the hands of local officials deeply and traumatically split communities and left legacies of deep distrust. So what happened during the 2011 war was in many ways formative for Libyan communities, but then how they dealt with um, the ensuing power struggles and the, the rise of insecurity and armed groups in the following years also had an impact on um, their social cohesion. So the point here is that social cohesion matters, but its relationship with political fragmentation is somewhat counterintuitive and it is not a constant factor because communities can emerge from conflict 
more cohesive or more divided. And I'll stop here for now. Thank you. Thank you so much, and thanks for keeping to time uh, very well. Um, I'm going to hand it straight over to Shireen. Um, thank you. Um, thank you, Wolfram. Thank you, Jessica. It's a pleasure to be with you here today. Um, let me start off with explaining why and how I'm interested in this book. I think I am interested in it um, in two capacities. One, as, um, as somebody who is interested and, and keen and in constantly engaging within policy debates on North Africa and Libya, and who is um, uh, quite keen to see a path forward for, for the Libyan conflict. The other hat, the other hat is actually as an, an my academic hat, which, um, uh, which is more about my PhD journey, which focused on Libya, which looked at very similar questions to the questions posed by Wolfram here, um, but uh, focusing on different set of actors altogether. So I looked at the period between 1911 and 1969 and primarily looked at state-society relations in that period of time in an effort to explain um, uh, the roots of Libya's fragmentation, free Gaddafi. So uh, looking at trade unions, associations, religious actors, um, and, and Wolfram looked at something completely different. He looked at the, the, the violent conflict unfolding in Libya in 2011 onwards, but we arrived at very similar um, conclusions. Um, uh, one, which is the, uh, the, an, an understanding of localism that is a bit more nuanced than the, 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 the more policy-oriented understanding of localism and statelessness of Libya as being you know, inherent, um, that Libyans have never managed to um, achieve unity, never managed to craft an understanding of, of, of nationhood. And in, in my analysis, localism uh, was both as a face of a form of social cohesion, but was also a threat to um, national unity. And that in, in, in different ways, it has both contributed to the development of, of, of statehood in Libya, but has also acted as a threat to it. And that it is necessary to look at um, uh, forms of cooperation and contestation among social actors to get a good sense and understanding of how and, and why statehood has both emerged and unraveled within the Libyan context. And so I go back to the, the, the point, which is I think that this book is quite important in that it lends itself to policy debates and discussions in Libya currently. And it does have, um, and I will explain later in my talk, that critical implications on how we address uh, the Libyan conflict. But also it is quite critical to expanding the scholarship on, on Libya more generally um, with regards to questions related to statelessness, statehood and, and, and state building, and more generally on state society relations. So I'm, I congratulate Wolfram on, on his book and um, I, I've really enjoyed um, reading it. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to refer to um, a number of key areas that I found quite critical in our understanding of, um, of the book. And then I'm going to move into two or three areas that I think would be strategic for us to think about um, either a follow-up or an expansion um, um, on, this, um, on this analysis. 
The first area that I found really important and, and a critical contribution is, the, is on the centrality of history and the centrality that the, the process of how the Libyan conflict uh, took place is as important as why it happened. Um, and I quote asking why the Libyan revolution erupted is synonymous with asking how it erupted. That emphasis on process is really important. Um, Wolfram makes the very important point that all politics are made of the interaction of interaction and process, but that in particular, violent interactions is, is quite transformative. And that for us to understand um, uh, the trajectory of the Libyan revolution from 2011 onwards, it's very important for us to understand the microdynamics of the process itself and not just simply looking at it um, um, uh, you know, holistically or looking at it as a, a single unit of analysis. We need to understand why, uh, how it happened, not just why it happened. Um, so that, that point I thought was, was really important. The second point that he also made and which he noted very well in his, um, in his introduction is on the centrality of, of locality, which is the war is not exper experienced the same way all over the country, which tends to be a, um, an issue or, or a pitfall that a number of policy analysts and, um, and policymakers uh, engaged in Libya fall into, which is the, the treatment of the Libyan conflict as a single unit of analysis that, you know, it is, and, and the number of times that um, in discussions of Libya, you hear the idea that you've got a number of stubborn militias um, on the ground fighting one another, and um, it is all a matter of um, how international regional engagement can resolve this, this conflict. Um, but, the, but the reality that, um, uh, that Wolfram puts forward is that it's not experienced the same way. And there are so many different microdynamics that need to be understood, need to be taken into, um, uh, into consideration in order to fully understand uh, the trajectory uh, of this conflict. Misrata's experience is different from Zintan's, is different from Beni Walid. Each of those locations had very, uh, a dramatically different um, experience. Geography, um, he also points out, is, is really important and that it's not just a matter of um, the, the political dynamics or the political formations within those regions, but also their geographic location um, and what that geography gives to them. Masrata, for example, the businessman there had financial resources, had access uh, to a port that allowed them to have access to sufficient weaponry and supplies in, um, uh, when the revolution broke out in, in 2011. But if you look at Beni Walid, for example, they didn't have those um, advantages, which um, increased the, the stakes for them to, to side with the, with the revolution or side with the rebellion against uh, Gaddafi. And so it's important to, to take those uh, factors into account. The, the, the last point that I wanted to bring up, and, and it really is that the chapter is closest to my heart and, and, and I found uh, quite interesting, is the one on social embeddedness and, and violent conflict. It really calls for a rethink of, um, uh, uh, and a transition from thinking about militias and armed actors in Libya, again, as a single unit of analysis and trying to situate them within their, their um, communities and, and within their social context and trying to understand the kind of relations and their social embeddedness and the, its implications on, um, on uh, their political roles. 
And I thought that was um, a, is a very important contribution of this book with regards to Libya, but even more broadly on um, analysis and armed conflict um, uh, more generally, and the need to look at armed actors as social actors and not just as uh, as armed actors and looking at them from an organizational institutional uh, perspective. Now, what are the areas that I um, that I think would be worthy of uh, more reflection or um, perhaps a follow up book if um, if uh, Wolfram is up for it? The first one, and I go back to the point on uh, the centrality of history, that one of the key contributions to the book is that um, it offers a theoretical framing to understanding the Libyan conflict as a process of, as a process of transformation, um, and that the uh, and that is important to look at both the macro and micro dynamics. I think it's also important to refer to um, the historical literature on Libya, where social transformation and, and transformation more generally in state society relations is a key variable for uh, um, investigation. And there is literature, especially emerging by, uh, from, from the region itself and um, by Libyan and, and Arab analysts who've tried to document um, a social transformation in Libya over the years. Uh, both after 2011 and uh, and during the Qaddafi period, even before then, the uh, the literature emerging from the Libyan Studies Center um, is quite um, uh, important. Also, um, uh, 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 political scientists and historians uh, from Munsef Wannes, Ahmed Futuri, Mustafa Al Tir, and 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 others who've really tried to understand the dynamics of. Um, uh, uh, social movements and um, and social transformation within Libya, um, and I think it would be important. It would be uh, it will be an an addition um, in terms of uh, uh, deepening the analysis is to go is to try to understand how this period in, in Libyan history correlates or intersects, if anything. Um, with uh, previous uh, previous period, both uh, under Qaddafi or preceding Qaddafi, where that localism was still very much present, where microdynamics were uh, did exist, maybe not in the not in the sense of um, violent conflict, which is the focus of uh, Wolfram's uh, book. It would be interesting to look at other at other dynamics and try to understand. Um, whether or not and to what extent state-society relations have indeed shifted uh, during this period of time. I also think it's important to look at questions related to past dependence and, and, and whether or not it, this is a, it's important to look at the process unfolding now or to look at the process unfolding now as a result of, of, um, of uh, processes of past dependence that may go back all the way to um, the Italian colonization of Libya and the strength of the resistance against it, which is again, which again, very much happened at a regional and, and a local level. Um, and, and, and see um, to, to what extent uh, there are intersections and, the, and there are connections there. I would refer to a book by uh, Paul Pearson, um, A Politics in Time, where he puts forward the idea that in, in trying to explain events, as just one shot in, in, in analyzing an event um, uh, 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 through an understanding of different stakeholders without really understanding the sequence and without really understanding forces of, of uh, past dependence that may be there, 
um, might give us um, a somewhat skewed understanding of what's going on and that the sequence of events matter and that path dependence is not just about um, forces that have put, been put in place um, that, that cannot be changed but it could be about um, uh, the fact that those forces might cost a lot more to reverse um, than uh, to continue on, on this path. And so, um, so I think this is, this is an, important, um, an important point and an important area that would be worthy of, of consideration. The other area um, that I think is also important for us to discuss is that the book seems to um, uh, adopt a definition of the state as a monopoly on violence within um, uh, a defined uh, territory, the Weberian definition of the state. And while even Weber's definition of, um, uh, of the state was a heuristic, which means it's an aspirational definition that not, you know, not even countries or states in Europe have been able to achieve, I wonder if this is the best understanding and the most useful understanding of, um, uh, of statehood um, uh, in Libya. And if that is the best understanding that would help us decipher and, and analyze the conflict in Libya. And here I also put a question to Wolfram about the, um, the monopoly on violence. Is it really ever possible? I mean, you look at states like the US today, for example, and you question the degree to which they have a monopoly on violence there. Still, I think that some form or elements of the Weberian definition uh, would be important, um, but that it would also be useful to look at uh, interpretations and definitions or versions of state building from within the Libyan context itself. And here, the Tripolitanian Republic is an example. Um, he, uh, Wolfram does mention the Senussi um, Emirate. Where, and, and those are examples where a monopoly in violence, especially with the Senuseya, there was a monopoly in violence, it was possible. Um, how did they make it work? Would it not be useful for us to go back in time and try to understand what elements were there um, uh, uh, in terms of that monopoly um, on violence and, and statehood that would be um, useful to, um, uh, uh, to use as a lens or, as a, or a framework within which we can understand um, the current situation in Libya. The other thing also related to, um, uh, to statehood is, is that my definition of statehood is that it is, um, it is a, it's a social field, it's in a constant process of creation, um, and that it is co-created with, with society, that it's not a separate entity from, um, from society altogether. Again, building on Migdal and building on other theorists from, uh, from the region like Adam Sahuli, who wrote um, uh, States in Late Formation, um, where he looked at the state as, as a social field um, that is constantly evolving and more as a process rather than a finished outcome. And perhaps those definitions or a different lens um, to statehood would allow us to see um, uh, opportunities for monopoly on violence in Libya and an understanding of fragmentation from a different um, uh, perspective altogether. The final point um, I want to mention is, is also um, related to the, uh, the, the sample or the, the interviews in, included within the book. I think it um, is fascinating in particular in the chapter on uh, social embeddedness that uh, you could actually hear the voices of um, armed actors. You can actually hear the voices of political 
leaders of, um, uh, of communities. But I wonder if um, there is a distinction to be made between the reaction of the political um, elite towards the, uh, the, the transitions that have taken place in Libya since 2011 and communities or um, communities writ large. And if that is a distinction that, again, would, um, would somewhat um, uh, change the analysis on, um, uh, on fragmentation that it is important to understand how loyalism or localism, sorry, works um, uh, both from the perspective of the elite within those societies and within those regions, but also the rest of, uh, the, rest of the community. It would have been interesting to, to hear alternative perspectives other than those who are directly involved in the, in the violent conflict um, itself. So um, I think those are the, the main, my main uh, comments. Again, congratulations on um, a great book and, and excellent um, work. And, um, and as I said, I look forward to a, a follow-up. Thank you. Thank you very much, Shireen. Um, so we have a, a number of questions already, um, but I think just before we turn to them, uh, I'd just like to give Wolfram the opportunity, if you would like, to um, re reply to any of Shireen's points. Um, so, uh, yes, um, thank you very much, uh, Shereen, for, uh, for, for that, um, you know, very useful and, and uh, rich feedback. Um, on the role of history and of um, path dependencies, um, I, mean, I mean, part of my argument is about looking at historical precedents and historical uh, patterns in Libya and then um, pointing out why these changed in 2011. Um, so, of course, I mean, I totally agree that it's, uh, it's absolutely crucial to, uh, to look at history, to, um, to see how state-society relations in Libya uh, came to be constituted historically. Um, and part of my argument is actually about how history matters, uh, particularly how the most recent history matters. You know, that, that actors in the conflict are not all perfectly flexible and opportunistic, um, that uh, many are bound to a significant extent uh, by the divides and the loyalties that, that originate in earlier phases of the conflict. But where the book says here new dynamics matter that are shaped much more by immediate circumstances than by history is in the first days of the, the uprising. Um, this is where we have a critical juncture, where we have a rupture, you know, where path dependencies are upended because all of a sudden people find themselves in a situation that is totally unprecedented, um, in which they have to take decisions, take sides without knowing what others' positions are, uh, what the abilities of the state to reestablish control are, where things are going. So, um, uh, so this is a situation in which uh, individual decisions and contingency play a big role, um, but uh, but 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 I do I do take your point. Um, I do think that I try to take into account history, but and maybe some of the you know some of the the, the works that you've pointed out, I haven't taken to uh, taken them into account sufficiently. But it's also of course the problem that uh, recent Libyan history. Um, remains quite poorly explored actually right there's a, there's a 
dearth of, uh, of work, even if you take, account, take into account um, the, the Arabic language research. Um, on the state, um, so I'm not sure we're in disagreement here, uh, since I'm not arguing that a state should be measured against whether it has a full monopoly of violence. I'm arguing that um, political and military fragmentation of the kind we have in Libya today makes it very difficult to reestablish any form of central authority, um, since we not only have multiple local armed groups across the country that, that contest the state monopoly on the means of violence, but at the central government level, so many factions compete for influence within state institutions, including within security institutions, that you cannot speak of any semblance of central authority. Um, and establishing some form of central authority, even if it's just uh, in Tripoli would require at least a move towards monopolizing the concentrated means of violence, which is the term that I'd use, that I'm using also in the book, meaning we're talking about state control of large concentrations of forces, of, of heavy weapons, rather than about the small arms that, that are likely to remain widespread in Libya for a long time. Um, and the kind of fragmentation we have in Libya makes any such moves very difficult. And at the same time, uh, the absence of central authority perpetuates political fragmentation because there is no cohesive political alliance at the central government level that could gradually integrate and co-opt local factions. So I do think that um, this helps explain uh, conflict dynamics in Libya. Now, is the notion of a state monopoly on the concentrated means of violence uh, a Western notion that is not applicable in other societies? No, I don't think so. I think it's something you can see throughout, well, in states throughout uh, human history, nor is it alien to Libya since um, Gaddafi very much had a monopoly not only on the concentrated means of violence, but on, on the means of violence as such. Um, of course, the way Gaddafi monopolized the means of violence is not something that is desirable for Libya today. And of course, uh, societies find widely varying arrangements to deal with the issue of violence. Was the Tripoli the Tripolitanian Republic, an example of an alternative arrangement. I'm not so sure. Um, I mean, for me, despite its name, the Tripoli Republic was less akin to a state and more akin to a temporary alliance between uh, local factions. It was too short-lived to really uh, be a state. It lacked the institutional trappings of a state other than the assembly of the leaders that constituted the alliance. Um, and it quite quickly fell apart um, due to factional rivalries and fighting. Actually, the, the Tripoli Republic and the period that followed it in the early 1920s uh, give a lot of material to those who argue that today's fragmentation is a function of historical path dependence, that we can see historical patterns re-emerge. Um, I would nuance this, but I also don't think and this is probably where we are in disagreement. I also don't think that uh, the Tripoli Republic offers 
useful lessons for how to deal with the total absence of even a tentative monopoly on the concentrated means of violence today. Thank you. Um, I, I'll, give, I'll give Shireen just a, one, a minute if you would like to get back very briefly um, before we get onto the Q&A. We do have quite a number of questions, but please feel free to. <laughs> No, thank you very much for, I mean, I think, I think we, we don't disagree as much as we do agree. Um, but on the Tripolitanian Republic, I think there are a lot of lessons learned in terms of why and how it was put together, why it worked for a period of time and why it failed. Um, and I think its failure was also, was not just the result of um, those alliances breaking down. It was also the lack of international recognition that was given to it. Is, is really important to go, for me, it's really important to go back very carefully to those historical examples and try to understand and dig a lot deeper into, again, back to you what you're saying, not why things happen, but how they happened and what kind of alliances uh, were in place, what, what were the successes. Um, for me, it was about um, a lot of the members of the Tripolitanian Republic did not have the sufficient social base, for instance, that would have allowed them um, uh, and would have allowed for the continuity of the Tripolitanian Republic, which is a problem that we're witnessing until today and which is a problem that you, for instance, argue in your own book. But the fact that they, they came together, and this is the first republic in the Arab world, right, means something. And it means that there is capacity for statehood within Libya, for indigenous statehood, and for um, people coming together and uniting under a vision, be it a regional vision or a national one. And those are the elements that I think would be important, not only in discussion of violence, conflict, and how to get out of it, but also in broader discussions on state building and, and statehood within, um, within Libya. So I hope I've, I've responded to that, yeah. Yeah, thank you very much. So, um, right, I'm going to move straight on to the questions, but I'm going to take my privilege as chair to pose one myself. Um, so I am not at all an expert on Libya, um, but looking at the kind of wider application of the book, um, if there indeed do you think there is one, because I think maybe as a political scientist, we sometimes get a bit kind of hung up on trying to uh, broaden the lessons in ways that they shouldn't necessarily always be. But um, so your um, I was kind of intrigued by the way that you described um, your treatment of the way that conflict dynamics can transform or solidify or crystallize certain aspects of social identity. And I think that's something that obviously resonates a great deal with the debate on sectarianism in the, in the uh, Middle East region. Um, certainly in um, Iraq and um, Syria. Um, and obviously in those conflicts, localism has, has also played into the, the kind of formations of uh, factions and alliances, but not in such a kind of overt way. And they've been much more premised around sectarian factors. But I think so, uh, like scholars of sectarianization tend to treat it as a, as a kind of individual phenomenon that is quite separate from perhaps um, the way that ethnic um, tribal uh, other kind of factors of social cohesion identity operate and I wondered if you see it that way because obviously in Libya you have a spectrum of different sources of um, cohesion so yeah so very briefly perhaps you could address that 
Yeah, on that, um, no, I think, I think there are probably quite a lot of parallels that you could, you could draw also to sectarian dynamics of, uh, of civil wars. Um, I mean, when I looked at the way escalatory dynamics interacted with this tendency of, um, of, of using categories for your enemy and how, what kind of effects, effects that has, um, I found evidence of that in, in very, very different kinds of conflicts, right? They could be uh, categories of, for particular regions, like you know, people from an entire region are suddenly, suddenly find themselves on the other side of the divide. Um, they could be ethnic or tribal or political categories. So in that sense, I do think that, I mean, this is really an area where um, some of the processes that I outline, I think have, have broader uh, validity in, in conflict dynamics and in escalatory dynamics and including in sectarian conflicts, I would say. Thank you. Um, okay, I, I'm gonna turn over to the questions. Um, so uh, I see a kind of somewhat chronological logic to some of them. So I'm going to attempt to pose them in that way. So we have a question from Lisa Anderson um, on the continuity of notable families over the last century seems quite striking. Is that changing in the current conflict? And uh, perhaps I can at the same time uh, pose one by Harold Walker, which is did Gaddafi deliberately encourage the fragmentation described or promote it involuntarily? And that's to both of you. Okay, uh, can I start briefly? Um, so on the notable families, this is something that I found striking in 2011 that, um, you know, uh, quite a lot of the families that were prominent um, even in the early 20th century, but then during the monarchy, um, their descendants because many of them were in the exile opposition, then returned and played a role in, uh, in 2011, or um, because they had been marginalized uh, by Gaddafi in Libya, uh, suddenly, suddenly appeared um, at the forefront um, of, of the action in 2011. This was striking in 2011, but it has since, I think, been eclipsed by uh, by all the other social changes that, that uh, the conflicts have brought, because you know, so so many people have um, thrust themselves onto the scene uh, as part of the conflicting parties, um, as members and leaders of uh, of armed groups or people associated with the armed groups, that um, this uh, return of historically prominent people has all historically prominent, prominent families um, has since been uh, relativized, I would say. Um, with regard to Gaddafi, yes, I mean, certainly there are a number of ways in which Gaddafi promoted uh, fragmentation. One was by uh, preventing the establishment of any nationwide political forces. Right? Uh, you couldn't establish political forces, therefore uh, you couldn't establish nationwide political organizations. And, uh, um, and, and that by default then gives more weight to, uh, to local associations. Um, that's one uh, kind, and he also promoted uh, fragmentation at the local level by 
um, promoting promoting uh, alternative local elites against uh, established local notables um, and thereby um, undermining um, the, the, the patronage structures that existed at the local level uh, during the monarchy area. So also this, this is something that um, we still see in the rivalry between you know, tribal notables and local notables uh, at the local level. Thanks. Shireen, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, on the first question with regards to um, uh, Lisa Anderson's, um, the continuity of notable families, I think that's a very interesting question. It is really worthy of um, further investigation. So on, on the one hand, members of the diaspora, members of those notable families who returned to Libya after 2011, there was a mixed reception to them, even if they belonged to those notable families, they, their children were perceived as um, people who, were, who didn't experience the Qaddafi period, who were not harmed by, the, by Qaddafi's policies, who, were, who lived abroad, you know, and were not, were not part of the struggle. And so there was a reluctance to, to easily, you know, absorb them within, within the ranks, within the revolutionary ranks. And, um, and, and, and that's, that's one part of the story. But increasingly, including recently, um, people who, whose names belong to those notable families, they get pointed out, I mean, for their political alliances. Um, and, and you realize that, that history is very much present. The history of their alliances, such as the Muntasir family, for example, or Sawahili, th their history is very much present in how they're being perceived by Libyan communities and the kind of social basis that they're able to, um, to, to command or to, to hold within Libya today. And so I think um, I, I think it is it is definitely an interesting um, uh, an interesting question, but but there's um, and and it's a it's a twofold um, uh, uh, role. On the one hand, there's there's a rejection of them, but on the other hand, they they are associated with their uh, historical um, ancestors, and and that in a way defines their their political alliances. Uh, on the on the Gaddafi. Um, uh, uh, the period and in Qaddafi deliberately uh, supporting fragmentation. I, mean, I completely agree with Paul Fern's uh, response, so I have nothing to add to that. Okay, thank you. Um, could, can I just uh, just reiterate to the audience, if you want to ask Q&A, can you put them in the Q&A box and not, not the chat box? It just makes it easier to collate them. Um, so uh, a question from James Moody, who says, thank you both. To what extent is international interference actively shaping the local dynamics of violence in Libya? Has it changed the mechanisms through which local actors fragment or engage in violence? So, um... I think we, we've seen both. We've seen uh, foreign interference both promote fragmentation and uh, promote consolidation. We've seen it promote fragmentation in 2011 when um, the support to um, the rebels was not centrally cha uh, channeled through the NTC, the military support, um, but uh, was in many cases directly channeled to individual factions, individual local factions or political factions. Um, and this, of course, had uh, the, in, the, the effect of strengthening uh, local factions against uh, the central leadership that was very weak um, anyway. Um, we've seen, in the case of foreign support to 
on the Haftar Alliance since 2014, which was initially a very loose alliance, we've seen uh, that foreign support actually help Haftar consolidate uh, authority uh, in a very significant way um, because Haftar really monopolized access to uh, to foreign support, and he he enjoyed foreign support that was far disproportionate to that what any other actors in the conflict received. Um, and so uh, that foreign support was absolutely decisive, in my view, in his ability to gradually consolidate authority over the alliance that he mobilized uh, in eastern Libya in in 2014. And it took it took several years for him uh, to do that. Maybe. One last aspect of foreign interference and, and its relation to fragmentation is um, the foreign role in mediation and in negotiation, uh, because um, we've seen after the 2014-2015 civil war, the, the mediation efforts that the UN led um, deliberately tried to break apart the two opposing camps um, and, uh, and create an alliance uh, that would then form uh, the, the GNA, the unity government. And that provoked a lot of uh, political fragmentation um, at, the, at the local level in places like uh, Misrata, like, uh, like Sintan, um, yeah, particularly in Western Libya. And I think we can see some of the same dynamics playing out right now. Ah, oh, Shireen, did you want to add to that? No, not much. I would just distinguish between international and Western engagement in Libya and regional engagement. And I think the re regional engagement has, be has become or was a lot more significant um, in terms of contributing to furthering the polarization um, of political groups with, within Libya than the international one. So. I think the role of Egypt, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and that is very well documented, that continues to operate very much on the ground, not just through the provision of weaponry, but we've, we've known about airstrikes um, uh, coming into Libya from some of those countries. So they're engaged in both direct and indirect ways. And I think that has definitely contributed and fueled the, um, um, uh, the political conflict. Thank you. Um, so we have a, a question that's been voted up um, from Voza Alvarez, uh, which is which Libyan political figure is participating in the ongoing talks, um, being more representative and credible, could help cohesion? And that relates to a couple of the questions about who are the actors who can actually improve uh, social cohesion. I'm not going to name names now. Um, I think that's, uh, but I think it's, it's simply a very difficult uh, question to answer, right? Um, because, I mean, I can, I can tell you that many of the people that have uh, typically shown up uh, in international negotiations are often, I mean, I would say, you know, it's often very doubtful to what extent they actually have traction uh, on the ground. Um, and, and this still applies today. We'll see how it uh, plays out in the upcoming political dialogue that is supposed in, to start in a few days, I think. Um, but it is a very difficult 
issue to deal with um, for mediators, not only because they face pressure from, uh, from foreign states who want to promote you know, their clients as, uh, as people who need to be at the negotiating table, but also because it is, um, you know, the, the, the forces that fought against Haftar in Western Libya and Tripoli don't really have a clear leadership. Uh, they don't really have um, a clear political representation, right? And so it's, um, it's very difficult to get things right and, and, and find the right uh, representation for them. Although until now, part of the problem has been that people haven't really tried, that there has been a, um, there have been shortcomings in actually trying to bring security actors to the table rather than the parliamentarians and, and, and people like this. Can I just add to that a related question from Otman Gajiji, which is, can municipalities and local government play a role in stability and state building, um, just as one of the sets of actors? Shireen, do you want to go first maybe on this or? Okay. Um, I mean, I think for, for in terms of inter in terms of the negotiation process and the role of the UN, I think to be very frank here, I think that's where path dependence comes in. I think the UN process has not been not just in not just in terms of inclusivity, it has not been genuine from the start. And um, my understanding um, from the perception on the ground of the UN process is so detached from what is happening on the ground. It's lost a lot of its credibility over the years. Okay, so you get to a point now where everybody's asking who should be at the table? Should it be X, Y, or Z? But it's not, it's not just about that. It's also about um, the credibility of the process itself, which, which is no longer there. And the need for the UN to rebuild that credibility parallel to the mediation process. Um, it's not just so much about who's at the table, because I think um, uh, the UN has tended to invite kind of the star kind of um, figures to be at the table without really recognizing or, re or understanding where the social base and um, what the, the conflict dynamics are like. So I, I strongly urge them to read Wolfram's book and, and you know, to, to really get a strong, robust understanding of the dynamics on, on the ground to inform the process um, itself. So that, that's my take on you know, who should be at the table. I think it's more about, again, the process of how you cultivate and you generate uh, credibility. And one way to do it is yes, through local governments and, and municipalities and local actors, but it, it needs to be a much more, again, meaningful. It needs to be a much more meaningful, genuine process. It shouldn't be about meeting at hotels um, and identifying two or three people uh, to give presentations. And that's it. I mean, the, the research that we've been doing on um, a protection, for instance, in, in Libya, the, the accounts that we're getting from um, uh, uh, Libyan journalists, um, local Libyan civil society leaders, just communities is really negative. I mean, they went to the UN seeking a, a help and, and assistance and have not, you know, they haven't received anything in return and their engagement was very much uh, conditional. Um, so so I, I guess that, that is my, my response to the question, but Wolfram, do you want to on the municipalities, um, I think, you know, when it comes to can they play a role in um, negotiations and peace building, um, I think uh, we have to be somewhat careful because uh, the municipalities 
have, I think where they've been more successful, they've tried to avoid uh, getting into these more political uh, issues and have tried to stick to service provision. Um, and where, where they've played a more political role, they've often been attacked also locally uh, because, you know, on the basis of the argument that this is not what they were elect elected for. Um, but where you have a municipality that has broad local support, sure, yes, of course. But beyond that, I think absolutely local actors, given that localism plays such an important role, local actors have a key, key role uh, to play in, in negotiations and in, in, in uh, reconciliation. But where I would say we shouldn't maybe overemphasize the role of um, municipalities is that there needs to be, you know, what, what's really missing, what's really most missing in, in, in Libya is central authority in the form of yeah, some form of uh, also, you know, military power that is associated with, um, with the central government, which doesn't mean it's not the same um, as saying there needs to be a centralized government. Um, you know, there is the, the administration, the bureaucracy is still highly centralized, far too centralized, but there is no central authority. That's the paradox we have in, uh, in Libya today. So what's missing is really central authority. And, and that can only, only that can actually, you know, produce a functional relationship with uh, municipalities and, 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 and enable municipality, municipalities to work properly, I think. Thank you. Do you want to add to that, Shireen? Sorry. I just wanted to say that on, I mean, that, that's a point where I would slightly disagree with Wolfram, but then again, there is no easy way out, right? I, I don't think that the solution to Libya, to Libya's conflict or to the situation right now is um, necessarily a central authority. Can we not imagine a scenario where some form of um, with, with different forms of local governance would coalesce at some point and over a period of time into um, an authority of sorts that doesn't need to be um, uh, too centralized that would still uh, recognize and be inclusive of the different regions and the priorities of different parts of Libya and and how different parts of Libya imagine a Libyan nation because they imagine it and they understand it in different ways and that and there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. It's okay to have some level of contestation within state building. Um, so, so I just wanted to, to say that I, I, don't, I don't necessarily see a contradiction between supporting municipalities and um, the, the development over time of some form of authority it doesn't necessarily need to be, for me at least, a, a central authority. Okay, I'm going to move on from there to a um, slightly different set of questions. So we have a number of questions about the international um, role, but actually I'm going to first address uh, Haftar. There are some questions on Haftar. So one from Rosa Alvarez. Haftar is a very dis divisive figure. Is he still enjoying support inside the National Libyan Army, HOR, and militias in the south? Um, and in Tripoli area, which militias are more strategically relevant for peace negotiations? And then another from Daniel Sternoff, which is that the Haftar Maitik um, Accords seem to be holding and oil production is rising, even though there hasn't been progress on oil revenue sharing distribution of oil revenues. 
is this likely to unravel or is this a turning point where the need for revenues and budget sharing can drive cohesion or a workable federalist distribution of resources? Okay, so I think this is where we really leave the, the issues you know, discussed by the book and when we come to uh, current affairs, so to speak. Um, on Haftar's support, I think his support has suffered greatly. Um, it suffered in Western Libya with the beginning of, uh, of the war in Tripoli. And then it has, since his defeat in Tripoli, it has also suffered uh, in, in Eastern and, and Southern Libya because um, yes, there were always true believers in, in Haftar, but there were also a lot of people who joined the Haftar train because they expected Haftar to win. And, uh, and it's now clear that he won't win. Um, and so, therefore, we also see his, his camp in eastern Libya start to fragment, although by no means, uh, by no means to the extent that we are seeing the anti-Haftar camp fragment in western Libya. In western Libya, we've seen much stronger divisions than we, we currently see in, in eastern Libya. Um, the agreement... I mean, so part of it actually resonates with some of the questions posed by the book in terms of can there be, can we get back to a situation where we have um, a central government that allocates uh, oil revenues and therefore we have some form of centralized patronage network. Um, but no, I don't think we, I don't, I don't think we're anywhere near that. Uh, right now. Um, the Haftar Maitig agreement is not what's, what's holding at the moment. I think what happened was really that uh, Haftar looked for some form of uh, face-saving way of allowing oil production to resume, even though he knows that um, the agreement that he negotiated with Maitig on revenue share sharing is not going to be uh, implemented. So right now it's I think it's completely unclear what will happen with the oil revenues, with the revenues from the oil that is now flowing. Um, but it seems less probable that the oil will be shut down again because Haftar is in a weaker position now. So uh, he, he may have difficulty taking the same step again of shutting down the oil uh as he did in january he may not be powerful enough in the current situation to do that although it's also possible that he may use it as a way of demonstrating that he is still relevant so we'll see sorry shireen did you want to add i have nothing to add to this no that's okay. fine great okay so uh, uh back to the international um uh, there are several questions along the same lines um essentially so one of them from Abdul Akhtar, don't you think the United States holds the magic stick and will use it to stop the Libyan conflict anytime they wish? Um, Mohtar, uh, don't you think that what has happened in Libya was manufactured by foreign affairs? Um, and oh, there was another one, essentially uh, more on the, the role of external actors um, and, and especially the United States, I guess. Okay, so... Um... 
So there's been a general tendency, I think, over the last um, year and a half to really focus on the international aspects of, uh, of the war in Libya, of, of the conflict in Libya, um, which makes sense because international, you know, foreign intervention has significantly grown over the last uh, year and a half. But we also see that in the current situation where we no longer have acute fighting, um, the influence of foreign powers, Russia, Turkey, the UAE, Egypt, their ability to really uh, control developments on the ground has actually um, de decreased because we now have a very complex and fast moving local political scene with lots of divisions, lots of um, realignments of alliances both in Western and in Eastern Libya, suddenly everyone is talking to everyone and they're talking uh, both directly and in various foreign capitals. Um, and, and this is a completely chaotic situation where I think um, foreign powers have significantly less influence than they had when there were two clearly defined camps fighting against each other. Um, but to come back to the question of um, the US and its role, I mean, yes, um, the US could use a lot more uh, influence than it has used uh, in the last years. We've seen, you know, I mean, uh, a big part of the conflict is that we have um, various foreign powers who are supposedly all allies of the US fighting against each other in, uh, in Libya, notably Turkey, Egypt, and, uh, and the UAE. Um, and if there were more interest, more US interest in Libya to stop the war, then we would see greater leverage being applied to these states to stop their interference in Libya. But clearly the priority in US, US, US relations with the UAE, with Turkey, with Egypt is not Libya, right? I mean, there are many other issues that, that are far more important and therefore the US is not using its leverage. We, we saw on several occasions in the past that when the US wants to solve problems in Libya, it, it actually can. Uh, we saw, for example, in, uh, in July 2018, when Haftar uh, stopped the oil, which was at a time when this actually had an impact on world oil prices and, and the US administration was worried about that, uh, that US diplomat diplomacy could revert that decision in a matter of days. Um, so uh, yes, if Libya had higher priority for the, for the US, um, it, it could change a lot uh, on the ground. That is not to say that the US or any other foreign actor are omnipotent. I mean, I, I think that on the question of the US, my response would actually be no. I think the interests that regional actors like Egypt, UAE, um, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Russia and Turkey, their interests would in, in Libya would transcend both economically and geopolitically um, and would be more important than uh, anything that the US could, um, could push them towards or, or away from. So, so my take on this is that actually that the, the role of, of the US is, is actually 
not not that strong it's not that strong it's not that powerful i think regional interests are a lot more important i don't think that regional actors and regional powers are listening or going to take orders basically from uh the american government to in terms of their engagement in libya because libya is so important uh to them on on so many levels to egypt for example it is uh, it is of such strategic value it is a security um, um, it, it is of security and economic value to Egypt that, that would uh, be a lot more important than anything else. Um, so, so yeah, so that, that's, my, uh, that's my take on it. Um, in, terms of, um, in terms of other foreign powers, I, just, I wanted to mention the question of migration, which we haven't really touched upon, and the importance of um, uh, the migration agenda for European countries and, and EU states in, in particular, and how that has defined um, EU engagement in Libya for a very long time, primarily Italy um, um, uh, in particular. And I, and I think that this has led uh, the, um, uh, the EU to lose a lot, again, a lot of its credibility in Libya by overemphasizing um, uh, uh, the migration agenda and overemphasizing um, the need to keep refugees and keep migrants over in Libya and using Libya as that barrier that would, uh, that would protect them. Um, and I think we've reached a point where um, a rethink of this agenda altogether and that of the European neighborhood and, and the relations between Southern Europe and North Africa, Libya in particular, really needs to be completely uh, rethought in the, in the very same way that UN engagement in Libya needs to be completely reimagined. Um, and I think that that has defined uh, their engagement for a very for a very long time and has been problematic uh, for its engagement because um, the priority was not to address the Libyan conflict. It was not to address Libyan issues, the Libyan humanitarian crisis. It wasn't to address any of those things. And now with, with coronavirus, for instance, we're witnessing a lot of the, uh, the, 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 um, uh, the, the problems and the, the implications of that lack of engagement for a very long time. Um, and that needs a, com a complete overhaul. Thank you. Um, so to return to the book, um, a, a couple of questions about fragmentation. Uh, so a question from Faith Mobera. In light of the central argument about fragmentation as a result of the role of violence in transforming so social relations as well as the microdynamics of the civil war, how will this localism affect the prospects of demilitarization, SSR and DDR reforms, which are often uh, informed by logic of unifying ex-combatants? Um, and there's a question that goes with that, I guess, which is, uh, I'd like to, from Umberto Provazio, uh, thank you very much for your remarks. I'd like to ask the author if he thinks that the process of fragmentation has been uh, partially reverted in the past two years and to what extent? Is the East-West divide going to be a further obstacle considering the foreign entrenchment? Would historic regions represent a barrier that prevent national unity? So um, <clears throat> on the question of DDR, right? It's, uh, right, hang on, let me look at it again. Yeah, SSR, DDR, demilitarization. I think um, what, um, 
What I'm saying is that um, we have very different kinds of armed groups uh, in, in Libya. Um, we have armed groups uh, that you know, follow quite narrow aims, um, that um, follow, the, the, follow the interests of their leaders or key members. Um, we have other groups that are much more uh, embedded in their communities and actually to an extent that it's really hard to establish where their boundaries are. Right? And, and, uh, and that means that the way that these groups could uh, demobilize uh, differs. It, it could be, I mean, in some cases, uh, you could integrate some of these people into formal uh, security institutions. In other cases, I think, particularly in, in the case of socially embedded armed groups, um, in communities that uh, have experienced, you know, a, a, a lot of intercommunal conflict in the last years, I think realistically speaking, these groups will remain dormant at the local level for a long time to come. You know, these um, at least uh, medium and small and medium uh, sized weapons will probably remain quite widespread in these communities for a long time to come. So um, there it is, it is more, well, it will have to be about providing security guarantees uh, to these local communities. Um, but realistically speaking, I don't think that you will see a full, uh, a full, well, I mean, demobilization, they are already demobilized, but you won't see um, a full uh, dispersal of those groups because they are very deeply embedded in the social fabric and um, and they um, and they will remain I mean they will retain their weapons as a security guarantee uh, for quite some time to come I think um, on fragmentation whether fragmentation has decreased no I wouldn't say so I mean you know in a situation it was clear during the recent war in Tripoli it was clear that this polarization into two camps was temporary. Um, everyone who knows the landscape in Libya knew that in reality we, did, we didn't have two, uh, two cohesive camps, but we had alliances of, um, of different factions. And even as the um, groups in the anti-Haftar alliance were fighting in Tripoli, they were already talking about um, all the problems that they had had among each other in the past and, and, and what this meant for the future once Haftar was, would be defeated. They were all already preparing for the next conflict among each other uh, while they were fighting against Haftar. Um, so um, we are now, I think, seeing uh, fragmentation re-emerge, particularly in Western Libya, uh, with force. And we're also seeing it to a lesser extent in Eastern Libya. There is a tendency, I think, since Haftar's defeat in Tripoli, there is a tendency um, for um, the East-West divide to become more pronounced. Um, this is a reaction to, uh, you know, to Haftar's defeat in, in Tripoli, um, but until now, it's not that prominent. Um, and 
I think even if there were, even if a secessionist movement were to emerge in Eastern Libya, it would probably face quite a lot of uh, opposition locally as well. I mean, I think I just wanted to say on, on DDR and I think that's one of the key takeaways or one of the key um, outcomes for me for the book is the need to rethink DDR um, from a local perspective and from a context, much more contextualized um, perspective, not just in Libya. I mean, because you see it in other countries, uh, Yemen being, being one of them. We are, if there was a political settlement reach, we'd be in a situation where we'd be thinking about that. And if the approach was similar to the usual DDR, it's not going to work because there as well, uh, uh, combatants and fighters are very much part of society and very deeply socially embedded. They're not a separate actor. And so I think that, again, one of the outcomes of the book is, is to, to rethink a lot of those framings and a lot of those um, uh, lenses that we use in approaching security sector reform and, and, and DDR. The, the other thing that, I, um, with regard to the second question, is about um, the historical fragmentation and the divisions between the regions. And, and, and here I want to say um, a couple of things. One is that because there are, different, there are differences between the eastern, the western, and the southern regions in Libya, both at, at a social level in terms of the population composition, even ethnically, their experience historically with, with colonization has been completely different. Um, not completely. I mean, they all had, they all experienced the atrocities of uh, Italian colonialism in, in different ways and to different extents, but they all experienced it. Um, but, but even though there, there are those um, uh, differences, that does not mean that fragmentation in Libya is endemic or that those regions are just forever going to be separate for one another and that Libya is going to be divided. And then we get into, um, again, a lot of the policy conversations tend to be quite apocalyptic in that sense is that Libya is going to be divided. It's always functioned as a divided country. Any, I mean, even look at neighboring countries, look at Tunisia, look at Egypt, somebody from upper Egypt and somebody from um, uh, some other parts of, of, of the country, Alexandria and Cairo, speak different dialects. They have different, you know, social uh, makeup. They even sometimes look differently. But that does not necessarily mean that it will be a divided, uh, a divided country. And so, um, the research that the the, the, the socio historical research that I have done does come up with very similar conclusions to um, uh, to Wolfram's that the fragmentation is conditioned by contextual. Um, social, political, economic factors, but it is not um, endemic. And so I don't think that uh, there is a contradiction between the specificities of, of those regions and national unity. I do think that national unity might happen. It, 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 could, it could happen. It depends on the political system that uh, would, be, would be used. My, again, based on the research I've conducted, the, the conclusion that I came up with is a more federal system would actually be um, a more suitable one uh, to be able to be inclusive of the different regions and their uh, specific histories and backgrounds and population compositions and all of that. I think Wolfram is more um, uh, leaning towards a centralized government, but, but that is a conversation that, no? Okay, good. No, that's not, that's not what I'm okay. saying. I'm, I don't, I'm not talking about a centralized government. I'm merely talking about some form of central authority. But can I just very briefly, Jessica, um, respond to, uh, to Shireen on, on the question of the East-West divide? I would have agreed with you um, 
you know, two years ago. Um, but I think that the recent conflict has really, um, has really strengthened the East-West divide uh, because many people in Western Libya noticed that almost nobody in Eastern Libya spoke out against the war in Tripoli, right? And, and uh, of course, people know that this is because um, uh, of fear, but, um, but there was also a widespread um, assumption that there was a lack of empathy uh, in, in, Eastern, in Eastern Libya uh, with people in Tripoli. Um, and conversely, when Haftar's forces were defeated, or as it became clear that they couldn't win the war, uh, there was also a reaction in Eastern Libya that we, we hear a lot now that said, well, uh, you know, it's because Western Libyans are not like us because they don't support the army. We supported the army. They don't want the army. They want their militias. We hear that a lot. We hear that a lot. And I think it has really, I mean, the divides have, um, have hardened, uh, I would say. Uh, it's quite possible that uh, they, this will recede now. Um, we have a lot of to and fro now between the East and West, a lot of people talking, um, but, um, but, but I would notice, I would note that uh, this has been an impact of the conflict on the social fabric, I would say. Thanks. We only have a couple minutes left. Um, so perhaps I could just pose the last question and ask you also both if you have any kind of concluding remarks that you'd like to add uh, as well. Um, so well, actually, I'm going to combine two questions. So from Bridget Sheffer, um, loved your book. Well, from thank you, Shireen, great points. Has social fragmentation contributed to the weakness of national institutions such as the NOC, CBL and others? Would a reform of the institutions help help reduce the power of militias? And then a question from the CMI team on how should we see Fezan marginalization in the actual fragmentation? Um, so, if you could really briefly address those, that would be great. Um, no, I don't think there is a direct link between social fragmentation and the weakness of, uh, of these institutions, CBL, NOC. Um, I think the, the, the link is more, much more direct with the absence of a central authority, right? And, and this is, you know, because central authority has split, uh, uh, into an, an Eastern and a, and a Tripoli-based uh, government, these institutions have also split. Um, and the, the link is at best indirect in the, in, in the sense that fragmentation makes it so difficult to, to re-establish uh, central authority. On Fezzan, uh, I'm not sure what, what you would like me to say on, on Fezzan. Um, I would say that Fezzan has, I mean, we, we've, seen, we've seen in the last years that developments in Fezzan have really followed trends in, uh, in northern Libya, um, and that uh, political alignments in Fezzan have, have shifted according to uh, the political fortunes of actors in, in northern Libya. Um, and we're still seeing that at the moment. We saw that during the war in Tripoli, that um, the region remained by and large uh, under Haftar's uh, nominal authority. Um, 
in recent weeks or in recent, in recent months, we see attempts in Fezzan to mobilize on a regional basis. But until now, this doesn't really seem to, to develop momentum. If we had similar attempts in Eastern Libya, I could, I could imagine that this would gather momentum in Southern Libya too. I mean, on the role of institutions very quickly, I think that um, strengthening institutions is really important and it would act as one of the drivers to address issues related to social cohesion. Um, maybe not in a direct way, but in, in, in different ways it, it would. It is an important factor. Um, on the, on the, on Fazen in particular, I think Fazen is understudied. I think there's a lot more to be done on Fazen. It tends to be marginalized both in the academic historical literature as well as contemporary analysis. Uh, there, there's a lot to be known about um, how armed actors operate over there, their social embeddedness um, uh, within the population uh, of Fazen. It's very important to look at migration routes. It is, the, it, is the, it is the part of Libya that's most connected to other parts of Africa. It is a migration route. So there's, there's a lot to be understood um, uh, and, and there's a lot to be analyzed and to, to be known about Fazen beyond um, it, it's, it's nominal political alliance. I mean, my understanding is that there are a lot, there are significant social and political um, and also economic dynamics. I mean, Fazen used to be a major trade route historically. Um, um, and so it, it, it is important to, um, it is important to do a lot more analysis. That. I don't think we know enough, basically. And I think there's a lot more to be known. Okay, thank you. I'm gonna, I'm sorry for um, those whose questions we haven't got around to, but um, we're out of time, I'm afraid. So um, I'm gonna wrap up, but um, just to leave it to our speakers, if they have any final words, or um, in, in, yeah, sorry, you're, Wolfram, do, do you wanna have? <laughs> I, I would simply say that what Shireen said last is a very good final word, which is that a lot remains to be known. Great. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you both for sharing your insights and um, thank you to the audience for um, a very good set of questions and a lively discussion. Um, and I hope that you uh, have the opportunity to read Wolfram's book um, and uh, can tune in for more of the Middle East Centre's events um, which are posted on our website. So thank you again to everyone um, and have a great afternoon.